0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Um, This is our just over a year of online programs ever since COVID started where we do virtual programming because we are not open for our live performances yet. I mentioned that because this program that you're about to hear was scheduled for exactly one year ago today. Uh, That was when we were going to do it, Uh, and of course, it got postponed. So now we're doing it virtually again. I hope that all of you enjoy this. It's National Poetry Month, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, We have two poets with us tonight. Uh, We have Phyllis Levin, a very famous poet. She's written five books and is working on more, obviously, and uh, teaches, has been teaching her whole career. She's at Hofstra University now. Uh, We also have Paul Gupta with us, uh, who is uh, uh, another poet, and he's also a lawyer. So we are going to have their poetry showcased. But we're also very interested in your own poetry. So if you have short poems and you'd like to send them in, um, we'll read them during the Q&A session after about 45 minutes or so. And I'd like to start a little bit with what poetry means to a lot of people. In some cultures, it has been extremely important. And of course, people talk about whether poetry is designed for the 21st century now. Obviously, a lot of forms of song are just another form of poetry, and singing and music is always part of pop culture. Um, But poetry has had its its times when people would memorize 10,000 lines in a poem, like uh, in ancient Greece or in ancient India. And there's another country which has really taken to poetry and still uh, has a very intense emotional relationship with their poets, uh, which is Russia. So I thought I would start with a a Russian poem by uh, Alexander Pushkin, their most famous poet from uh, the middle of the 19th century. Uh, like all good poets, he died young uh, in, in a tragic uh, accident uh, at a duel. Um, that was uh, We didn't ask Paul to do that before he could appear on the show today. Uh, but uh, other than that, the language, the use of sounds and language, and it doesn't have to be rhyme and that kind of thing for poetry, but the use of words and imagery in words, Uh, is exquisite uh, in the greatest poetry and it's, uh, you know, a crucial part of all poetry. So I just thought I'd I'd, I'd start with a poem by Pushkin and then we'll uh, go to Phyllis' work. That translates to, I remember the wondrous moment when you first appeared before me, like an incarnation of pure beauty this is, you know, obviously a love poem. And uh, it's hard to believe that somebody wouldn't fall for something like that when they're told that. And I'm, I'm sure that that's a part of what, what has happened with poetry in the past. But we also have a tremendous amount of images that are created. And uh, uh, I have uh, one of Phyllis's books wrapped uh, right over my shoulder. There are Mr. Memory and other poems. And Phyllis has so many great images that are created that almost anybody can identify with. I, I, I just think of one, uh, the boy the boy with the book bag, where she has a boy that comes to school for just one day, and the image that he impacts on people. I think almost everybody has had that happen to him as a child. Uh, it's a wonderful poem. Anyway, so that's our introduction uh, to the poetry. And now uh, let's hear from Phyllis and directly. And I'm sorry we can't be in person in, in San Francisco, as we had hoped uh, more than a year and a half ago when we did this, but we'll do that some other time. But thank you for joining us from New York. The uh, the stage, the Zoom stage is yours.
2: Thank you. And thank you to the Commonwealth Club for making me feel so welcome. I had been really looking forward to being in San Francisco in person last year. And one of the th- things I would have done would have been to drop into City Life's bookstore to see Lawrence Ferlinghetti again. I only met him once in my life, not that many years ago. But when I was 12, I started reading him. So he was really one of the very first contemporary poets I read. And he probably influenced me in ways I can't articulate or even know. So I wanted to acknowledge the debt to him and to his art and and his great work Um, and there are three other poets whose names I want to mention because they're not with us any longer and they only recently left but they will be with us always I hope. In addition to Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Ivan Boland, Jean Valentine, and most recently Adam Zagayevsky, the community of human beings are is so affected by poetry. Uh, the poets in particular feel the loss, the way when John Donne says, you know, for whom the bell tolls, I, we all feel we're somehow diminished when a poet dies. And yet, in some way, we're also expand who we are, because they become part of us, and they enlarge our being. I'm going to read a few poems from my fourth collection, May Day, and then read but six or seven poems from Mr. Memory and other poems and then read a few very new poems from a book I'm almost done. Uh, It's almost complete, not yet. It's my sixth collection and it's called An Anthology of Rain. The first poem I'm reading in May Day is called Acorn. Under his hat, many secrets, asleep, keeping time, Soon it will tell almost everything if you wait long enough in the grass, in the snow, if you look, if you listen. And if you do nothing, it will be what it will be nevertheless. With a hat like that, you could walk the windiest hall of an endless wood as the worst and the best rain down out of nowhere With a hat like that, you could hide the highest hope, the biggest fear, and appear once a year to disappear. Oh, where is the loom on which it is woven? How can a tomb too small for a petal carry the body of autumn in its hull? Cradle of greenest memory, Colonel, dreaming the weight of a starling cupola cupping the fire of dawn den of creation shedding itself again for a song oh give me a room to keep a secret until the leaf is ready to be lit and when it is time to go out into the cold give me a hat like that uh, the next poem I'm reading is actually dedicated to Jean Valentine, who was my teacher when I was an undergraduate student at Sarah Lawrence College. And one of the things Jean is known for are these strong silences in the forms of blank spaces within lines themselves rather than between lines. <clears throat> so, in some way, I'm smiling at her when I introduce those spaces, as are other poets. Tender offer. That little chick on the sidewalk, on the pink stone steps whose gravel glistened. The little boy who brought it by brought it to me in the cup of his hands, where he held it untrembling, a living thing, butter yellow ashes, a living thing, tiny body, somebody's being felt. Softer than, soft as the collection of all erasures. Butter, yellow, ash heap, feather bed, breathing inside his hands. Dandelion pillow with two puny legs, twig feet. One little body giving light, a cup of light of tenderness. Waking, so much work already done. And then I'm going to read a poem entitled Album. It alludes to a catastrophic event some of us know, not from direct experience, but from images on the front of newspapers all over the world. And this was the Sumatra-Andaman earthquake, which took place on December 26th. 2004, album, why on earth does a postage stamp come to mind when I see those floating bodies, immaculate faces of infants sleeping too deeply in the wake of the tsunami. Long ago, a flood overtook the basement Almost all the old books in ruins, leather bindings buckling, gilded edges fading, the marbling drifting away. From the wreckage, we pulled the stamp albums my father kept and another that was mine. Holding the countries I longed to visit, lozenges of color, names too fragrant to pronounce. Nations that are no more could slumber there, though swallowed or torn. Mountains, bridges, and flowers survived. The cover was stained. The pages dried. But one of the stamps had come undone, sliding from corners lovingly fastened. And now whole shorelines are sliding away. The book of the world, so swollen, it cannot close. Well, this is a few weeks after Easter, but um, this poem is entitled Lenten Song. Lenten actually comes from the old English word for spring. That the dead are real to us, cannot be denied. That the living are more real when they are dead, terrifies that the dead can rise as the living do is possible, is possible to surmise. But all the stars cannot come near all we meet in an eye. Flee from me, fear. As soot flies in a breeze, do not burn or settle in my sight. I've tasted you long enough. Let me save her something otherwise. Who wakes? Beside me now suits my soul. So I turn to words only to say he changes into his robe, rustles a page. He raises the lid of the piano to release what's born in its cage. If words come back to say they compromise or swear again they have died, there's no news in that, I reply. But a music without notes, these notes comprise, still, as spring beneath us lies, already something otherwise. To an ash on a crackling log. Little bat, gray rose, you quicken now. A pulse, a bloom, curling in on yourself embryonically, and in a breath, spinning up the flue, a gust away from floating free into a cloud whose ions hold eons of lovers at play, gazing upon each other and upon earth as if falling were amiss, as if they weren't a breath away from spinning, dear dervish like you. Piaget wrote about some of you may have studied the uh, Swiss psychologist uh, Piaget who really revolutionized the the study of child psychology. He was observing his own children when he made his really important insights about cognitive development and Of course, when I studied Piaget, I began to understand what I did as a child, which is what a lot of children do as children, which is become fascinated with what a mirror is and how strange a mirror is. And this poem is an exploration in some way of that, but also of the desire to be invisible. Not everyone has that desire, but um, it was something I pursued. (laughs) (laughs) Tabula Rasa. To see not herself herself in the mirror but the mirror itself startled by starlings darlings of the eye apples at home in their lunar glow piano scales welling below with nobody near except this child determined to gaze at a surface unyielding yet ever fluctuating giving in to every whim of light, giving in not at all to her wish, her will to be unseen. And why did she want this? Though I am she, I cannot tell, can only say her desire was born starkly, bare-boned and mute, tiptoeing, flagrant, to face a giant nothingness full of family secrets, icy, molten, taciturn, unknown. Look at her trying to steal a look without getting caught in the glass, betrayed again by a sliver of flesh, a quiver of self-sight. Here is the bed of the mother and father, island of sheets and pillows, Persian blue velvet, apricot silk. Here the bureau of many drawers in one Under a packet of letters, Trojans asleep in their wrappers, a comb and a brush waiting to touch the prince and princess, perfumes growing old in their vials, Baroque filigree stems. To see not myself in the mirror, but the mirror itself, a white wolf. With its pink tongue panting. Uh, This next poem, uh, there's a a note at the back of the book. I'm not going to read the whole book, the whole note, um, but but I should acknowledge. what the poem is in conversation with, which is a painting. The poem itself is called X-Radiograph, X-Radiography, as the technique is used to analyze paintings, in some cases, to see if there's a painting hidden under the painting. And this poem explores that. Uh, I wrote it after I first saw Bruegel's great painting, Massacre of the Innocents which had been restored, but restored in such a way that what had been hidden wasn't completely um, revealed. And because the the restorers had to decide whether to allow the attempt to cover up, be part of the historical record of the painting itself. So Mm -hmm. the poem is in conversation with that. It actually um, is in Windsor Castle. It's part of um, the collection, the Royal Collection, and um, has been exhibited several times for the public. Uh, It was at some point owned by Rudolf II, um, who was the Roman emperor, and he was probably responsible for the cover-up because the Mm -hmm. the painting was too politically charged because it depicted... um, German troops and, and uh, Spanish troops and German mercenaries uh, m- murdering children uh, uh, in a Flemish town, which was Bruegel's way of talking about what was happening historically at his very moment in time, while alluding also to the book of Matthew. Mm-hmm. X Radiograph. A woman is bending over something in the the snow. It appears to be an array of ham and cheese. What is it doing there? Is she lifting her arms in dismay or uttering a prayer of gratitude? Will the bounty be taken away by the soldiers closing in? Or has abundance fallen unbidden from a bitter winter sky? According to the X-ray, the winter is just as bitter, but there is no ham, no cheese, though that is what the naked eye sees. It isn't hunger. It's not a day of plunder. Something else is bringing her to her knees. If you look a little closer, the shadow of an infant shows through. You can find many such shadows in the scene. A soldier is herding women to a doorway. Armored knives on stallions stand guard. At another door is a soldier seizing a child who hasn't been painted over, changed into a bundle or a loaf of bread. A dog is barking. Birds have fled. Icicles hang from the knee from the eaves. By a frozen pond, a riderless horse rubs its head on a tree. Over another bundle, another infant shadow, another woman grieves. For a couple upholding, I'm sorry, for a couple imploring a soldier to spare a pale winged creature almost as big as the daughter whose father is pointing to her, read, take the girl instead of my baby son. Concealed under a goose, or is it a swan about to have its neck slashed open? A soldier pissing against a wall disguises nothing at all. Men, Bearing lances spear a rooster, stabbing until the last of the flock is dead. Women faint at the sight of a dying boar, a boy newly born not long before. A woman cradles a pitcher. If the man hovering near her seems thirsty, do not fear. He will not spill any water. The pitcher isn't a pitcher. The deed he must do has been done. The plunder has begun. It is bringing various people to their knees. This is what a naked eye sees. A mother and child in flight were partially lost when another side of the panel was cut down. As for the faded pair of socks in the snow, they are a faded pair of socks in the snow. I'm just going to read one or two from this book more, and then a few new poems. Um, another room. Uh, one of the things I think we all miss is, are the, uh, is the small gestures among people who are often strangers, barely, whom we barely know, but we connect with. Um, this is one of the things I've noticed more and more. And so when I selected poems for this evening. Part of what came to the forefront were, was how that was a concern for a long time in my work, but how it's it's more salient now. It's actually as if it's talking to me telling me what matters before I knew. But that's what poetry does. It knows a lot more than we do. <clears throat> another room. There is another room you could spend time in. What a shame. Not to enter, more often, walls a color hard to imagine, windows overlooking a shy garden. From there, it is easy to see a neighbor pinning laundry, composing a line of forlorn collars and sleeves, punctuated by buttons catching the afternoon sun, whose face was a stranger until their mother of pearl was torn from a bed in a reef. Wherever, whenever a chance to return, returns. You wonder why you didn't sit in that sofa alone or near someone in a chair, watching a robin abandon the swaying branches, listening to rain on the roof, undersong of comfort, undersong of grief. A lifetime could be wasted dreaming there. A lifetime wasted not dreaming there. On either side of the word lie, the letters that must be taken away to find the word nestled inside or not yet born. Removing those letters, deciding how many which ones is a science that resembles forgetting, dismemberment in the service of song. Finally, a new word rises from its shell and if it can, it rise, it calls out, saying, it's time to be said. I've been here all along, but you were reading without speaking. Seeking without seeing, a syllable alone is a seed of light. I'm just going to read a few new poems. Um, these, are, these are pretty short. Um, light Meter. A father wants his daughter to pose. She doesn't want to, doesn't want to be caught, though. One day, she will wish she'd been willing to stand inside time, just a moment for him, as he one day will stand with her, outside time, adjusting a lens. September 1st again. Lighted light at the tip of a branch. Why so early do you turn leaf dipped in vermilion close to the end? You point to a sidewalk, wet once, with names signed in cement to seal for all time. A vow uttered by two standing under the crown of a tree you cleave to still, for now. Solitary witness. Standing alone, limbs crisscrossing in shadows beginning to scrawl lines to a world hell-bent with or without intent on obscuring whatever they meant. Blighted light at the topmost bow, little flag hailing another day, do not go so early to ruin green, do not turn so soon. An anthology of rain. For this, you may see no need. You may think my aim dead set on something devoid of conceivable value, an anthology of rain. A collection of voices telling someone somewhere what it means to follow a drop traveling to its final place of rest. But do consider this request. If you have pressed your nose of any shape against a window, odour of metal, faint, persistent, while a storm cast its cloak over the shoulder of every cloud in sight. You are free to say whatever crosses your mind when you look at the face of time and the passing of one drop gathering speed, one drop chasing another, racing to A fork in the path lingering before making a detour to join another, fattening on the way until entering a rivulet, running to the sill. So please accept this invitation. You are welcome to submit. There is no limit to its limit. The instructions are a breeze, as long as you include nothing about yourself, even your name. Your address remains unnecessary, for the rain will find you. If you receive it, it receives you, whether or not you contribute, a volume is sent. And when you lift the collection, you may hear, by opening anywhere, a drop, and its story reappear as air turns to water, water to air. Thank you.
1: That was great, fellows. Um, before we go on to paul, i had you, you made one comment there, and we'll talk about your poetry a little later, but you said poetry knows more than we do um you you're You're saying you, you play what, what did you mean by that? I think it's somewhat obvious, but uh, but it's still very interesting to hear a poet say that about their own poetry.
2: Well, maybe it's a bit like how children know what we think they can't know Mhm-. Uh, it's almost like what Plato says, how we're born, or Socrates, you know, we're born, we, we know all of this, and then we're born and we forget. So mm-hmm. I remember reading things I'd written, I started writing out a very young age and so I was writing almost daily by the age of 12 but if I look at things I wrote when I was 14 I'm thinking well I didn't even I just figured this out now so how did I know it then that's what I mean
0: mm. so I think yeah.
2: there's something about the act of creation it doesn't have to only be poetry but a letting thoughts run away with themselves language will bring us to realizations and recognitions that we don't know we know because we didn't know it in advance the language brings us there, but then we might not be ready for that knowledge until many years later.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's nice to point out there's all kinds of writing to do that. Uh, there's all kinds of activities we do besides writing for those who are not writers that also give us self-knowledge eventually about ourselves and it's actually that self-knowledge we're pursuing is probably a more important motive than a lot of the other motives that we have for doing this writing. For those of you who have written poetry in private, for your entire lives, um, that's still way more than fifty percent of the value of writing poetry. You know, to to, to be able to express yourself and show—it's um, obviously also valuable to, for other people to read your poetry and to learn something from your experiences. But you have to learn your yourself from your own experiences even first. So um, we have a few questions uh, for you, fellas, a little bit later. But uh, let's let's go to Paul. And Paul, thanks a lot for for uh, being willing to uh, share your poetry uh, with us, and
0: uh, you want to give it an introduction at all, or you want to just plunge right in? Sure, George. Thank you very much. I was taken by Phyllis's mentioning of of poets that had influenced her, so let me uh, turn the tables on her and, um, first of all, compliment her on her marvelous poetry and her marvelous reading. Uh, What an extraordinary voice, both in the sense of a voice that teaches, as well as the voice that we heard today in person. Uh, Phyllis has been uh, so helpful to me in explaining uh, the differences between uh, poetry and prose, uh, which is an uphill climb for anyone trying to educate a lawyer. But having said that, another great influence on me has been Wallace Stevens, a poet I've loved greatly. And Stevens, of course, wrote poetry while he was a full-time lawyer. And then going further back, I remember one of my professors who uh, explained to the world the joys of Andrew Marvell, and uh, that professor uh, elevated Marvel from somebody in history's dustbin to a major, major poet. Um, and Marvel, uh, I mentioned Marvel because he talked about the events of his day and that influenced me too. Uh, so with that, let me um, read a few poems uh, that I have discussed uh, with Phyllis and also I appreciate an introduction uh, to Hunter Wechsler who has also been very helpful. And I'm gonna start with a poem that actually ha- was published on the blog and is still there of my pro bono client Headcount. Headcount is a wonderful organization that I'm, I'm very pleased to do some work for, and uh, they have helped over a million people register to vote. Uh, they combine music and voting, and they've signed some of the great artists uh, today, uh, singers who are poets too. Uh, let's not confine poetry to just some people that sit there, pen in hand, quill in hand, as it had been. Mm. Uh, but but the people that Headcount works with are also great poets, too, uh, as people like Neil Young, for example. And um, this poem I'm about to read uh, was posted on the Headcount website in 2018. Um, and you'll see, um, maybe tragically, some of the issues that I wrote about in 2018 are, are still front and center today. I call this poem Holding Lady Liberty's Hand, and uh, I subtitle it a poem for the statue we won't tear down. So here's Holding Lady Liberty's Hand. You would think that holding Lady Liberty's hand would be like holding a hand of stone, a hand warmed only by the tears of her motherly eyes, which see all the fighting on the streets. When I asked to hold Lady Liberty's hand, I heard her say, as the voices rumbled around her tell me that these are times for love when i asked to hold your hand you said no we are not living in times for love these are times when tears and tides overflow angry voices fill the streets those voices need to be heard they need to be heard right now then we thought There were the times of the giants on Mount Rushmore. Before they became giants of stone, they were patriots and lovers made of flesh and blood. Their families came to America on leaky boats. Some of us came to America on cruel slave ships. And some of us came on silver ships in the sky. We are a nation of pioneers with borrowed birthrights. Lady Liberty danced with our past giants who built foundations made of stone and words. Now she is a widow. She dances with us, her children, as we live our daily lives. We can repair those eroding stones. We can refresh those venerable words. Lady Liberty knows all men and women have inalienable rights. She knows it's our republic and our democracy if you can keep it. She hears the people yearning to breathe free. She can help us listen to the voices in the streets. She can help us find some harmony in the distance. Let me then move on to three poems uh, about the way that I've experienced San Francisco. And the first one I call Pyramid and Tower. And I got the idea from this poem by looking out my living room window Uh, where I can see uh, what I still call the Transamerica Building, Uh, and I think of that as the pyramid, because, of course, it's pyramid-shaped, and the Salesforce Tower, uh, which is a a great tower, uh, one of the finest and largest in the country. Uh, And I also think, uh, when I look at that, uh, because I've been off and on in San Francisco for a long time, I'm sheltering place in San Francisco now, uh, about the pyramid, the Transamerica Building, being the old San Francisco, some of the old values, and the tower uh, being uh, a representative, uh, a brilliant representative of uh, what is today modern and new. So here's Pyramid and Tower. I saw a massive pyramid built to celebrate the dead, a glorious vessel for one's soul's journey to find hope again. It gleamed silently in the light of a wolf moon. I saw a colossal new tower built for us, shining bright as a starship, with gaudy lights, psychedelic, like a pharaoh's last fevered dream. The tower was bustling before, but now it's quiet and still, just a tomb where ambition rests. Every clever machine is silent. The streets are empty except for a gray, one-dimensional bird flattened months ago, by a careless car. Can we have any hope for the survivors returning? Will we remember any lessons from the the departed? I see the clarity in the air now, fresh and pure as in ancient times, before the noisy machines. The birds are back in the bare trees, and I hear the young green parrots sitting on my balcony rail. They bring us hope and solace at least for today. My next poem also about San Francisco is called Hot Seat in San Francisco. And it's about a place called Jay's Lab. And Jay's Lab is a real place. It's a music venue attached to SF Jazz, a place that my wife and I love to go to regularly. Uh, We had uh, season tickets. Uh, And when I read this poem, uh, you you may hear some nostalgia in my voice uh, because of course, for the last year, uh, that's not been possible. And so when I wrote this poem, uh, it was before the shutdown, and it was when we expected to go back. And now when I'm looking at it again, uh, I, I feel it in a different way, and I hope that it comes through as I read it. So this is about Jay's Lab, the music venue. Uh, but if you want to be thinking, as I am now, um, well, maybe Jay's Lab is Jehovah's Lab. Uh, that's fine with me. Mm -hmm. So here's Hot Seat in San Francisco. At the late night show, I waited for my turn in the hot seat by the back door in Jay's lab. An edgy man with electric green hair took the hot seat. He was moving to his own music, atonal and harsh. He never heard poets' rhymes or lovers' rhythms. Prophets, true or false, could not help him he was told to go out the back door. The usher took his turn in the hot seat, but just to keep it warm, he sat with a watchful eye waiting patiently until a well-traveled man came in with a cane, ready to take the hot seat and ready to hear his last song. When the show was over, he left through the back door, stumbling but clear-eyed. He took his last breath of the damp air A passing car's headlights cast a shadow on the fog. The hot seat became cold. It would be warm again when I came back for the next show. Over and over, warm and hot and cold, aeon after aeon, show after show after show. I'm going to read my third poem about San Francisco today, and it's called Mary of the Street. It's about the Tenderloin area, Uh, which is known as a tough area, Uh, but to those who understand the city, it's also an area where there are some great music venues, and I want to talk about my experience stepping out of one of the music venues uh, from this place of music and light uh, and happiness onto the streets. And uh, so here's Mary of the Street. I was stopped by a woman on the street in the gritty Tenderloin, not safe for her or me. She said her name was Mary, and she asked me for a dollar. I turned away, but later wondered, had I seen her before? She of the hollow eyes, sunken cheeks, and woody skin? Yes, I had seen the eyes, cheeks, and skin before, in a safe and stately Florentine room with guards all around where beautiful people spoke in whispers, if at all. I had seen Donatello's Mary, made from wood and tears and faith, more lifelike than the living. She spoke to me with a soft voice that only thought could hear. She asked for a prayer. I turned away from her too. I may never see Mary of the street again. She may be lying in a lawless alley, colder than a statue. I will travel to see Mary in Florence. Standing before her, I will try to understand the greater and lesser mysteries both Marys had endured." Thinking about Donatello, and uh, one of the great experiences of my life was seeing Donatello's Mary in Florence, just made out of a pile of wood. And so I thought about what the creative process might be. Here's Donatello, a great master, uh, he, here are people trying to write poetry, but it's all the same, whether Don Dicello has a pile of sticks that he's trying to create a masterpiece out of, or, or whether it's Phyllis who creates masterpieces too, uh, but all she's got to start is a blank screen or a blank piece of paper. So I call this poem Death and the Muse. Death catches everyone. Only a few catch the muse, but death will never catch the muse. She has eternal life. Who would want to have eternal life and end up like Totonus, trapped in a shriveled body, seeing but not touching Aurora? But the muse, an inconstant lover, jumps from body to body. She loves sunset as much as she loves dawn. The muse has eternal life, never trapped in any body. The muse can find anyone, but you cannot find the muse. If you look for her, she will hide, and she may leave you forever. She can be your best friend if you catch her eye before death catches you. Before I finish, I wanted to read a poem about one of my favorite places, I think a magical place, and that's Hawaii. Uh, My wife and I tried to get to Hawaii every Christmas time. Of course, that wasn't possible. So it got me thinking about some of the experiences that we had had uh, over our many trips there. And I, I tried to think about them and uh, think about how I felt about them together and the variety of experiences there. So I wrote this poem called Broken Body Parts. As one year ended and we crept into the next uncertain year, I sat on a crescent beach in Hawaii with a sling from my hurt shoulder, not feeling any warmth from the sand or the setting sun. The clouds turned from white to slate gray The water was choppy, but I could not hear the sounds of the waves. I looked across the beach and thought of time, the greatest thief that steals life itself. I watched a strong man tied a large and colorful kite to his body. He went dancing on the ocean, but he was alone, no friend to dance with him, no one to meet him at the shore. The day would come when he crashed and could dance no more. Further down the beach, I saw a wedding party dressed in rainbow colors. They watched the bride in ivory white walk carefully toward the groom. You could see in her hopeful smile. This was not her first love. After the vial, she tightened her brace. The band played and the new couple danced together. Slowly, their friends cheered and danced with them. And then broken body parts were put out of mind. The sunset passed. It was that time of twilight when the sky and the sea are drained of color. No one played in the ocean. The dogs had gone home. But the wedding party was still celebrating. Their beach fires made light and warmth for them. I pulled my blanket around me. Hearing the waves, I dozed dreaming of a lost friend and our half-remembered song. My last two poems are looking forward to getting back to life the way that I always loved it, and I think we will. And so I'm going to be reading now The New Cocktail Party, uh, which was about one of the last parties I went to before the shutdown. That was actually the host of a party, um, but an event planner picked the place, and it turned out to be a very strange place. Uh, and so you'll see that, I hope, as I read this poem called The New Cocktail Party. Voices became louder and louder. The man with the hearing aid has to leave. Only the young are left. Words become inseparable. Consonants and vowels blending in new and old couplings. Individual words are lost to the crowd. I am a maker of the buzz, but I listen when a friend's word floats above the buzz. I am part of the crowd, and also apart from it. To be both part and apart is to be fully alive. My last poem is about getting back to life the way it was and the way it will be in the future, I'm sure. I call this poem Baseball Season. It's one of the first poems that I thought of as I started to uh, get more serious about writing poetry. Uh, And it took me a long time to pull it together. Uh, But here it goes. It's called baseball season. What is so comforting about baseball season? Is it the summer and heat and shorts? Is it that baseball has its rhythms and statistics, RBI and ERA? The numbers that have been kept and loved for so long? I most love the numbers that remind me of sounds, of the bat hitting the ball, the same sound that our parents and their parents heard. And which our children and their children will hear. Today we wear caps to the ballpark. Our parents and their parents wore hats. And the sounds of cheers and boos are all the same, game after game, generation after generation. After the games, there are the dinners and the same happy chatter in the restaurants. Different people are laughing, but they all sound the same night after night except on the nights when they are interrupted by a quarreling couple or a crying child or the unexpected silence that seems to last for a year do you remember the night the season ended early we can go back to hear the cheers in the ballparks now and the carefree talk in the restaurants they make a blessed backdrop for li- my life again. Thanks for the opportunity to read these poems, George.
1: I'll have to stand in for the audience here. That was great, Paul, really great. And the audience does have a couple of questions. So one of them was about the Bruegel painting, Phyllis. Yes. And, and uh, maybe you can explain. I mean, I know that that x-ray uh, technology was used to figure out, you know, what stuff has been put down on the Mona Lisa painting and uh, several other things like that. It was fascinating to find out that that it was used to show what was covered up and what the original intent of a Bruegel was. And for those who are not familiar with Bruegel paintings, it, 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 they're usually very large and have uh, like fifty to a hundred people in them, all doing different things. Um, and and are it's almost never something pleasant. <laughs> so so Phyllis, why don't you why don't you explain a little bit about that? Uh, that was the question.
2: Well, the painting was painted around fifteen sixty five. 1567 we're not sure there were copies of the painting and I believe that because there were copies made a few copies probably by other artists perhaps even of his son there's a sense of what it originally looked like Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
2: but the poet but I'm not sure can you explain the question in other words
1: yeah the the question is you know uh, how how did the the how did someone figure out, you just answered it basically, how did someone figure out that this original was something that had been covered up? And you mentioned very briefly that the owner probably had it changed. It's, it's, it's like, a, a there's too much nudity in you know, painting. And so people put a dress on later on. Um, in this case, it was, uh, you know, he was, the, the owner was part of the Habsburg empire who probably was responsible for the killings. Right. So why, why don't you.
2: Yeah. So Breigel painted this, we know he called it Massacre of the Innocents. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, Bruegel has a tendency to make, use language. We, you know, ekphrasis is we think of ekphrastic poetry as poetry about paintings, often forgetting that ekphrasis is a, an ancient Greek concept term, meaning to write about or to think about is a critical term where one medium of art is responding to another. It doesn't have to be a poem based on a painting. So when we read Ovid's Metamorphosis, the Metamorphosis as a as a text, as a poetic text, was the source of many Renaissance paintings. Then yeah. poets might be writing poems in response to those paintings, but the paintings themselves were responding to mm. literary texts. Bruegel, I mean, I would have to read more to know exactly what happened, but I'm suspecting that between art historians researching that time period and realizing that there were similar paintings that were showing something else and there were copies of the painting and the painting no, no longer looked like that. There is a record of the first, the first owner where there is an historical record for is mm-hmm. the emperor. And mm-hmm. we do know that if Bruegel called it the massacre of the innocents and it we're, we're, and it's, the scene is not biblical, meaning it doesn't look biblical. The people are not dressed as if they were at the time that is being described. And so he himself is already making a comment, a social comment, as he does in many of his paintings. Landscape with the Fall of Icarus is a title of a, one of his paintings. If it weren't given that title by him, probably most people wouldn't notice Icarus. So The right. title actually is The Clue. Look at that little thing, that little stroke. That's his foot sticking up out of the water. It mm-hmm. sh- it re- one reconfigures one's sense of what the painting concerns through the words. So Massacre of the Innocents is a very important title. But if one looks at the painting, one doesn't see innocents being massacred. One sees mm-hmm. the plundering of a town, objects being stolen or broken. And mm-hmm. so the title itself is a big clue, plus the the fact that there is at least one imitation, which is not showing what the painting was looking like. The painting mm-hmm. also needed restoration because of its condition. And mm-hmm. paint. I would imagine that some of the paint was peeling and one could see something else was there. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, what was so ingenious was the dilemma that the restorers and art historians had, which mm-hmm. is... Do, do we restore the original painting and show the massacre mm-hmm. where, you know, children are being speared, women are being murdered? Uh, it, it, there's, as you said, there's, there's multiple narratives. There's multiple narratives in this painting, as in all of Bruegel's paintings. Do they just do that or keep some of the cover up? Because the cover up is part of what happened to the meaning of the painting but we have no proof of who covered it up, but it's very likely that it was the first owner, which is at least 20 years after Bruegel painted it. And um, and then it was bought by Charles II. We do know that he purchased it in 1662. And it usually is hanging uh, in the King's dressing room in Windsor Castle. Mm. So it, it has the provenance. We know it's provenance, um, but we don't know exactly who uh, covered it up and who, Requested the cover-up, but we do know the time period in which Bruegel is painting is highly charged politically, and as you said, it is very likely that the emperor himself liked the painting, but would feel somewhat culpable for the massacre, <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, instead yeah. someone is stealing a jug uh, or breaking a jug. Uh, it's a it's, it's very shocking painting to look at, especially because one sees the cover-up while also seeing what's covered up
1: for for those poets who are listening in that don't uh, have the historical background there's a the Habsburg empire is a very uh weird conglomeration it was based in spain and in what's now spain and, and what's now austria but they also ran the netherlands where bruegel was uh for quite a while and so yeah. he was it was like one of their provinces they fought against that they wanted to be independent they lost but they didn't lose for that long and then they got their independence back so he was in a period of time where, where he hated the Habsburg, you know empire and made it very clear in the painting. So that's another little background for it. So Paul, there's a question for you about um, your poem, Broken Bo- Body Parts, I think. The, the person said that was very interesting how you just said in the wedding party that she tightened her brace. You didn't say anything else about her. You just said tightened her brace. Want to explain? That's a, that's a very interesting poetic effect. You know, you, you, you eliminate much of the information, but you, you, you show a glimpse of what you're trying to say. So why don't you, why don't you talk about how you made that decision in, in your poetry writing?
0: Absolutely. And it ties back very much to what Phyllis was saying about the title, because the title is Broken Body Parts. Mm-hmm. And as a reader is hearing me read or reading it, uh, holding a book or, or a Kindle, um, I'd like the reader to be thinking about, well, why is he calling it Broken Body Parts? And then there's that aha moment uh, mm-hmm. when it comes together. Um, And there's meant to be a feeling uh, of sadness, uh, but also happiness all mixed up together. Um, And that I try to capture that in my line of, this was not her first love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's also meant to be ambiguous uh, because sometimes uh, someone's first love um, just ends up disastrously. It's like the Sheryl Crow song, my favorite mistake. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes (laughs) it turns out to be great like with me, I've been married for, for a long, long time, uh, to my first love. Mm. So uh, that that's another line that I think can be uh, interpreted very differently um, depending on the context and, frankly, depending on the mood of the rear. And I, I think that's a, a great thing about poetry. I know Phyllis um, achieves that effort almost uh, without trying. Uh, mm-hmm. Sprezzatura, you know, that great word for making the hard look easy, um, of... Giving something that the reader can interpret different ways, uh, depending on how the reader approaches the poem.
1: I also mentioned how it was interesting that between the broken body part, uh, person getting married, and the young man who seemed to be totally healthy out, you know, dancing on the waves. But you said he was alone, so there, there was a trade-off in a way. Um, you you just said how hard it can be. Uh, would you care to share how many drafts or how many years you uh, you know this poem has has been been developing over?
0: Uh, w- well, it's been a long time. Let me let me leave it with that. I think the best way to answer your question is about uh, baseball season, um, because mm-hmm. that took a long time to gel for me. And My initial idea uh, was actually um, walking to um, a restaurant um, and I heard this noise. And then I, it just struck me that uh, because we had been we were traveling, we were on vacation, mm-hmm. uh, my wife and I, and we were going from restaurant to restaurant. And it just struck me after the third or fourth night, well, every restaurant sounds alike. I Mm -hmm. could close my eyes and walk into a restaurant Mm -hmm. and I I wouldn't know what restaurant it is, but for seeing the sign on the menu. And then I realized there's this happy chatter that happens in in these restaurants. And then I started to think about baseball and how every game, whether the booze and the cheers, but really the background noise, uh, it's all the same. And so Mm -hmm. I started to think about how I could put that into a poem. Um, and then finally, uh, it came to me uh, that I could put it in the context of the baseball tradition, which of course goes way back and I hope will continue forever. And trying to tie together the notion that these background noises, what I call the blessed backdrop of my life, um, are really part of this whole tradition of you go to games. Um, and so it's, it's a wonderful thing. I think it, it really is important uh, to make us human. And I think these days, uh, with all the jolts in the news, uh, it's just easy to forget um, that there's these, there are these long traditions which are finally coming back uh, now that um, we're, we're uh, free to move around. Uh, but they're really tied in with the human nature, which, which wants to have that comfort, uh, very much, frankly, like a religious uh, tradition or ritual. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was trying to focus on, because I feel like that part of life, which is so important to the soul, isn't getting talked about so much, especially with this 24-hour news cycle. And we're just bombarded with little facts, uh, most of which are jarring. And I wanted to get back to uh, a big piece of what I think makes us people and makes us whole people and sane people.
1: Well, you're going to bring a lot of hope to uh, listeners who, who understand that a lawyer can also have a soul. Um... And, and don't give the,
0: me too much credit, george <laughs>
1: <laughs> well Phyllis there's another question for you, um, and maybe that's a, a good one to finish with it's a, it's a two a two part question, but it has to do with do you think that poetry and the ability to write poetry can be taught that's something that you do so so I would assume that you you do, but you can talk about that, but also that it's national poetry month um and and where that tradition comes from, so maybe you can say a little bit about that and then let us know whether poetry can, you know, whether you can turn anybody into a poet.
2: Well, that, these are questions asked of many people. I don't know that I have a very good answer. Mm -hmm. I think National Poetry Month is something different to every person, but uh, once one creates a holiday or an occasion, it means people flock to it. It's sort of like uh, the magnet in the iron filings. Poetry is here with us always, but... Some cultures bring it more to the forefront than others. You know, when I first went to Italy, I spent some time in Sicily in my early 20s. And you know, when the, I don't know how, but the, I barely knew any Italian. But I remember the bus driver, as soon as he, he knew I was an American. But when he found out I wrote poetry, and I don't know how he found that out. He must have asked me something, why I was there. Um, and I had just been studying ancient Greek, um, which is why I went to Sicily, because there's so many of the great ancient Greek ruins there. He started reciting Dante from memory.
1: Of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know,
2: when I lived in Slovenia, people would say we wouldn't exist without poetry. Our entire identity is based on poetry because the poet Prasheran made us part of European civilization by writing a great sonnet sequence that other people respected. And so we were brought to the center from the margin. We were no longer marginalized. So I've had the experience over and over. I've had students who memorized Shakespeare. I remember a young man um, He was actually out on parole, and he memorized. It was in one of my classes in a community college. And he had told me his background a little bit and was scared he couldn't memorize Shakespeare. But he did. He memorized a passage of Shakespeare. And after he recited Shakespeare, he said, now I am Shakespeare. So it's the power. Language is power. And Mm -hmm. people are empowered by language. So National Poetry Month is sort of like, is there a National Human Month? I mean, there's something absurd. (laughs) But I mean, really, there is something absurd when it's part of the culture. So I think our American culture evolved National Poetry Month to answer a vacuum or a gap or a lack of appreciation, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: once you start celebrating, it's like Mother's Day didn't exist. It was invented. Father's Day didn't exist. Right. Mothers and fathers existed. <laughs> mother's Day was, do not make mothers. Father's Day doesn't make fathers. But suddenly everybody's like, oh, God, the one day I'm going to remember my father is now today, right? Yeah. Um, And so it creates this panic, I think, for some people. Oh, my God, we've got to have a poet. It's it's April, you know. Uh, (laughs) Of course, it's April because, Eliot's. you know, April is the cruelest month. So there's something a bit bittersweet about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so it's almost as if, Who's the joke on? Um, but I can't answer. I think it's different for everyone, but the fact that it exists means people can make it their own. Um, the other question, remind me of the other <laughs> uh,
1: about uh, can poetry be taught? Oh. Can you can you turn anybody into a poet or or anyone?
2: Uh, I don't think I don't think anyone who writes poetry wants to turn anyone into anything. But going back to since you're you've studied philosophy and you know that. Socrates conceives of himself, <laughs> part of the pun, as the midwife, mm-hmm. helping people give birth to themselves. Right. So when one teaches poetry, one might be giving that person exercises, it might not be breathing exercises for birth, for giving birth. But, there, but one, there are many approaches, but first one sees what that person has written. And sizes it up. There's something intuitive. And, you know, when teaching poetry, when there's, there's, it's like when Keats talks about negative capability, I'm not, I don't want to impose my style, my ego on another person. I want to sense what it is they seem to want to be doing in language. And it could mm-hmm. just be a phrase. It could be the whole thing. It's just not very good. But there is this spark. And it's like, go there, go there. Mm-hmm. Because. Play, the spirit of play is essential to poetry. And the problem is people approach people. People will approach poetry if they haven't felt comfortable writing it, composing it, and didn't grow up reading it, reciting it, um, depending on the culture or the family or whatever. They'll, it's so elevated, but there's this idea that one has to be poetic. Poetic is the enemy of poetry. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've just killed the poem.
1: I think we just have our, 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 uh, hashtag poet. Poetic is the enemy of poetry. <laughs> right,
2: well, it's, 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 it's an idea that's taken one outside, yeah. um, uh, you know, it, it's it, to follow rhythm and to follow a word or a sound, the way one follows the bouncing ball, the way a child will, will bounce a ball and see where it goes and pick it up. And then where does it go next? And tosses it up. And something starts happening. And then the shape happens. There's a shape. And then the refinement is in making something happen in the shape. Is it symmetrical? Is it too symmetrical? All of those kinds of things. So teaching comes in by there being another voice. Uh, Sympathetically experiencing what the person has created and saying, well, what if you did this? What if you did that? And reading, pointing people in the direction of other voices, other rhetorical strategies, other patterns. You you began with a poem in Russian that you read in Russian. Mm. I remember, I don't know Russian at all, but I remember Uh, being a freshman in college and hearing Joseph Brodsky read at my college and in Russian first his English wasn't that great at that point and he was there with a translator with the person who was his professional translator at the time and I remember I felt as if electricity were going through me I felt his poetry and it was the first time I felt in hearing poetry what I felt when I started writing poetry it was mm-hmm. the same rhythms, but I don't know Russian. It was as if, because I remember feeling possessed as a child by certain rhythms, and I was trying to get words for the shapes of sound and the rhythms mm-hmm. of sound. I didn't know what I was trying to say. I was trying to create shapes out of rhythms. Mm-hmm. And I felt that when I heard him read. It's not rational, but it's real. It's real. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, I don't know if I'm making any sense.
1: But No, um, you made perfe- perfect sense. And and. Uh... Very ironically, in a way, that's just yet another connection because uh, I mean, I'm older than you are. And when I was at school, um, I studied Russian and Joseph Brodsky was brought by our professors to the United States. And he had his first year at my college. And so Michigan. I got to hear University him, too, uh, when he first came over, um, both in Russian and and then he had his translator. So probably several years later, um, he was reading at your school. Um, so. So that's fascinating. And you also mentioned Socrates, and I did want to end, um, it's, it's time to wrap this up, but I did want to end by, by saying that part of the motivation for poetry, for the philosophy uh, form, is to say that Plato gets a bad rap for not liking uh, uh, poets uh, in, in uh, the Republic because he has a, uh, a rule against erotic poetry because it's too disruptive. Uh, but it's very important to remember that was just one thing he said, and he actually was a poet himself. And it's very clear he was a poet, um, not only from how he wrote, but also, you know, he talked about Socrates, his poetry, all, all kinds of things. So um, I'm, I'm looking for a little, uh, you know, uh, forgiveness for uh, <laughs> for his that one statement in the Republic, um, because poetry is clearly a way that we all express ourselves. Um, whether we write poetry or not, we're trying to express something clearly. And the more honestly we can express it, uh, the more interestingly, but it It's just such a nice, long tradition of being abstract with our imagery so that other people who hear what we're thinking about can take it wherever they want to go with it. It's universal before universal movies became that way for all countries. So anyway, it was just great that you joined us, uh, you know, from New York. And Paul, thank you very much for joining us. That was excellent uh, reading of your own poetry. And so it's another event of the Commonwealth Club. It's 119th year of Enlightened Discussion. Thanks for joining us. Hope to see you again in another program.